why do something hard when you could do something easy? As we've been working through this series in 2 Timothy, uh, I want, I'm sure you've gathered this by now, but I want to reiterate and remind you um, that in no way, shape, or form has God called you to something easy. Now, the Christian life, when lived well, is one that is full of joy. It is full of ridiculous joy. But the Christian life, when lived well, is one that is full of pain and hardship. Because what God is asking you to do is to make yourself uncomfortable Not just so that you can be uncomfortable, but God is asking you to make yourself uncomfortable for the sake of the kingdom. And so I I always want us to be clear about that. I don't ever want anybody showing up at Blessed Hope Church and and then um, having some trouble in the Christian life and feeling like, well, wait a minute, that's not what they said. They said it was supposed to be easy and that God was going to make my life simple and that that when I followed Jesus that everything was going to be hunky-dory and great. And you know what? In a lot of ways, when you follow Jesus, everything falls into place. Everything makes sense. Everything starts to take on this new grand meaning. It's like, uh, it's like the shadows are gone and light is there and everything that happens becomes more clear and vibrant. And I get it and I understand, but there is nowhere in the word of God that is going to tell you that following Jesus Christ is going to be simple or easy. It's hard, it's complicated, and you are called to be uncomfortable. If you are here this morning and you are a Christian and you seek comfort more than you seek obedience to the mission, then you have missed the primary call to be salt and light in a broken world. Jesus says, you are salt and light. How will the world know? You don't light a light and bury it and and, and put a bowl on top of it so that it doesn't shine. No, you let it shine. You let it invade darkness. You're salt Right? You are a flavoring agent, a preserving agent that is out there supposed to be actively working against the darkness and decay in the world. That's not comfortable. So, I mean, if you are here and you are, yes, I am a Christ follower, but yes, I pursue comfort, there's a disconnect. Something isn't right. It's not going to make sense. And, and a lot of what Paul writes to Timothy in, in the letter that we've been working through, 2 Timothy, a lot of what Paul writes is about being uncomfortable for the sake of something bigger than yourself, being missional, standing firm for true things, fighting against what's wrong, fighting for what's right. And today, as we continue, we talk about um, showing ourselves as approved, okay, and we talk about not being disqualified, Do you know how easy it is to become disqualified? It is far too easy to disqualify ourselves from useful, godly service. And when I say to to disqualify ourselves, I want you to understand this is something you do to yourself. Uh, Satan is actively at work and he tries to mess with you. 
Satan tempts you, he pokes you, he prods you, he cajoles you. We talked about him last week. He is the father of lies. He is going to actively try to move you in a direction to where you make poor choices. And those poor choices oftentimes will disqualify you from service, or at least from right now service. But you choose that. Two easy examples for you that that come from everyday life. When I graduated from college... Uh, I had a full-time job. I was working in a residential treatment center. Uh, but my job, it was a second shift job. I was the, the supervisor there, and it was 2 o'clock to 10 o'clock. I had elementary-aged kids that could not live at home anymore, and they were living in, in a treatment facility, um, basically a group home. Uh, and I worked there from 2 to 10. It was a good job. I enjoyed it. It was a hard job, but it was a fun job. But I had this degree in teaching, and I thought, well, if I used my degree in teaching, that would be awesome. So I took another job working with at-risk students in uh, the Carbon Cliff Barstow District in Barstow, Illinois. Um, I went to work in a middle school, part-time, 8 to 12, okay? And, I, you know, it was every day, Monday through Friday, and I had at-risk students. There were 64 kids in the school. I had 40-some on my caseload um, working with at-risk students. It was kind of a rough um, school, uh, and they had just been through some leadership transition, and they had hired a new superintendent, whose office happened to be at the middle school. Those kids were hard. And I remember one time one of those students, a seventh grade young man, was sent to the office. And the principal, I'm sorry, no, the superintendent, the nice um, young man who had finally gotten his um, his uh, doctorate level work accomplished and took this job, curriculum and instruction, and then he took this job as a superintendent. I'm sure he was thinking this is a smaller district. I'd like to move this on to something bigger, but this was the place he was at. Um, decided that, that he could handle this. Um, and so he sat down across from this young man to have a heart-to-heart about behavior. But not like a gentle heart-to-heart, like a loud heart-to-heart about his behavior, um, intentions rose, and the young man um, said something that you don't say to people, especially not to the superintendent, and the superintendent smacked him in the face. It was a gut reaction, it was a momentary choice, and it disqualified him from service. He immediately resigned. Um, I don't know where his career is now. That was, man, that was 20 years ago. But he immediately disqualified himself from service because of a momentary decision. Uh, When I started working in Bettendorf as a school counselor my first year there, there was a superintendent. It was his third year. Uh, It was his second district. And he went to a meeting out of town. Um, And at that meeting out of town, apparently, he decided to leave early and end up at a bar and grill. And so during working hours, he had one too many and got arrested for um, driving under the influence on his way back to his office in the school district. And immediately, because of a decision that he made, influenced by Satan, I'm sure, disqualified himself from service. It is very easy to disqualify yourself from service. And in the church, as a Christian, it's a whole lot more simple than you think. And it's not about humanly us deciding who is qualified for service. It's about God deciding who is qualified 
for service. And that's what Paul is writing to Timothy in this chunk of Scripture. So let's, let's get into it. Um, We'll start with this. In 2 Timothy 2.20, you can open your Bibles if you've got them. We're going to finish out the chapter, okay? Seven verses here. And you can read with me on the screen or, or follow along in your, in your own. In a wealthy home, some utensils are made of gold and silver, and some are made of wood and clay. The expensive utensils are used for special occasions, and the cheap ones are for everyday use. Okay, uh, And that's how Paul opens this chunk of scripture. And so um, you're like, well, that just makes good common sense. Of course it does. But what Paul's doing is he's making a connection between these household items. Um, it's weird that there's a table up here because I'm going to end up ignoring you guys, and I don't mean to. Just know I'd be over there if I could be. So I'm going to stay right here. Um, there are everyday items, and there are special items. And this is all about the church now. And now, I don't want you to get confused because there are times in the church when Paul writes things about the body of Christ and he says, you know what? The body of Christ is meant to be um, everybody working together. Yes, there are eyes and mouths and hands. There are also feet and toes and knees and nobody is more important than anybody else. Everybody does the job that God has given them to do and when that happens, um, the body works well and Christ is glorified and God is worshipped and things are on the move and that's very good. That's not the point Paul's making here. Here, Paul is very clearly setting a picture that there are two kinds of utensils. Some of them are worthy of honor and are useful for special things. Some of them are not. And the call, church, is for you to be useful for special, honorable things. And so he says there are some of gold and silver, and there are some of wood and clay. And so when I say that there are some dishes or utensils or things that are more valuable, uh, right away we might think China, right? You've got fine china. How many of you have china? How many of you got it at your wedding? Okay. How many of you have never used it? Anybody? Okay. A couple of you. Um, or maybe once a year or maybe on fancy occasions. We don't have china. Um, we have fine Dollar General cups that we just bought. They're fancy. Okay. Um, but some of you have those. You don't break those out for just um, any meal, right? And that's where we typically think of when we think of this kind of thing. But I want you to, I want you to get past that because that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul has something else in mind, um, far grosser, when he talks about um, in a wealthy home, there are some objects, instruments that are gold and silver and that are used for more honorable use. And then there are some that are wood and clay and that they are just for normal, everyday kind of grossness. Think chamber pot. Think you wake up in the middle of the night in this time and you got to go. You're not going outside to, to find a, a restroom. You pull out the chamber pot and you use it. You relieve yourself and then it sits until you toss it out and you use it again. That would not be something that when esteemed guests come over that I pull out and serve wine in. That would be weird. And so what Paul is getting at with Timothy here is he's like, look, just like in a regular home, you have some things that have 
a whole lot more value because of what they are, and you can do a whole lot more things with them because of what they are. There are also everyday common things that are reserved only for, because of what they are, everyday common stuff. A chamber pot is never going to be anything more than a chamber pot because that's what it is. Okay, and Paul says, man, that's like you guys. And I did, Paul says, Matt doesn't say, Paul says, that's like you guys. Some of you in the church are gold and silver that are set apart for special use that are ready at a moment's notice to be on mission for God's kingdom. Some of you are wood and clay and are cheap ones for everyday use. Okay, and Paul says that to Timothy. He says that's the way it is in a wealthy home. That's the way it is in a church. And so then, because of that reality, he makes this call. This is the call to Timothy. If you keep yourself pure, you will be a special utensil for honorable use. Your life will be clean, and you'll be ready for the master to use for every good work. So this is, this is the thing that he does here. He makes this transition, and he says, so if you are careful, if you keep yourself pure, you're going to be a special utensil for honorable use. Your life will be clean, and you will be ready. See, what, what, what makes the difference here is that when you keep yourself pure, purity, by the way, is the standard. Okay, you know what purity means? In this context, purity means holiness. Holiness is how we think of God because he is wholly set apart. He is other, right? He is completely separate from you and I and anything else. And God says, if you are a Christian that is useful for service in the kingdom, you are going through this process of purifying yourself. That means being set apart, being pure making yourself holy. Now, you and I, listen to me. On this side of heaven, we will never be 100% holy. We don't have it in us. It's not in our nature. We will always struggle with the dual reality of we are uh, made in the image of God with this drive and desire to pursue holiness. But we are also born in sin and we practiced sin, and so we're always struggling to be holy. But when you become a Christian, what happens is you make this change. It's repentance. It's I'm going one direction away from God. I understand about Jesus. I understand about the cross. I understand about my sin. I understand about my need for a Savior, and I choose to accept Jesus as Lord of my life, and I'm going to follow him, and I turn this way. The understanding is, Christian, that at this point, you will not be perfect, but you will start to pursue holiness. The pursuit of holiness should be your calling if you are a Christ follower. If you are a Christ follower here who says, I don't care about growing to be more like Jesus. I don't care about pursuing holiness. If you are a Christ follower who says that doesn't matter to me, then there is a huge disconnect and you are disqualifying yourself from service. You are what did it tell us? You are wood and clay and your cheap everyday use, and you can't do the things that God has called you to do. But when you make a decision to pursue holiness, to keep yourself pure, then you'll be a special utensil 
designed for honorable use. And God will use you. See, a lot of you have told me in conversations we've had in the past, a lot of you have told me, you know what? When God's ready for me, I'll get ready. And it kind of doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? Because what God is calling you to do is grow to be more and more like him. And as you grow to be more and more like him, he has things for you to do. You are useful. Now, I don't know where you are in your walk with Christ. I don't know how mature or immature you are. None of us are completely mature. None of us. We just can't wake up one day and be completely mature. It doesn't work that way. But here's the thing. As you mature, and as you grow to be more and more like Jesus Christ, and as you pursue holiness, what happens is this. God gives you something to do that matches your level of holiness. And as you continue to pursue holiness and you do the things God puts in front of you and you continue to pursue holiness and you get a little further along, God will continue to give you things there that will match your level of purity and holiness. And it will continue and it will continue because we all were clay and wood and chamber pots at one point in time. But as we continue to pursue holiness, we move away from that and God puts things for us to do that match our level of holiness. That's, I mean, I, I've said that like 12 times. I'm going to say it one more time because I, I can't stress it enough. God will give you something to do, work for you to do, ministry for you to do that is on par with your level of holiness. And so as you grow more and more holy and you pursue purity, then God will give you more and more important things to do for the sake of the ministry. That's how this works. This isn't a, it's good enough. I'm good enough. I also understand that nobody is going to be perfect. But this is part of the path that we're on. It's what, it's what Ephesians 2.10 tells us. It says, you are made new in Christ Jesus so that you can be about the work that God has prepared for you to do a long time ago. It means today there is work for you to do that matches your level of holiness. And as you pursue holiness, there will be more work for you to do. Don't settle. Don't settle for a cheap utensil when God has called you to be something bigger. And so we get it. We're like, okay, Matt, that's fine and good, but how do I pursue holiness? Well, it's simple. It's what he says next in, in verse 22. You want to pursue holiness, you run. Run from anything that stimulates youthful lusts. Instead, pursue righteous living, faithfulness, and love, and peace. Enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. There's a couple of things for you to note here. First of all, when you run from anything that stimulates youthful lusts, lust of the flesh, the lust of the heart, the lust for money, the lust for things, the lust for whatever, when you run from things that stimulate youthful lust, that means you're probably running from things that aren't bad. Because there's a lot of good things in the world, there's a lot of neutral things in the world that because we're broken, when we engage in them and when we are engaging in something that should be okay, for some of us, it's too much and it just draws us down this path, okay? That's why some of you should not drink. 
Because when you drink something that by itself is not, I'm convinced, sinful, but when you engage in it, it draws you down this path where you have now engaged in sinfulness because you are overtaken by it and you are all in on it and, and now you are not drinking, but you are drunk. And that's not okay. For some of you, I mean, for, for some of you, it means you probably shouldn't have a computer in your home because just the draw of the internet it's too much. Some of you probably need to go back to having a flip phone. Whatever it is, okay? When you understand that you are fleeing from, because flee is not a soft word. Flee is, man, you don't like, you stay over there, I'll stay over here. Flee is you get away from. I mean, some of you feel about snakes the way I feel about frogs. I mean, who hates the snakes? Right. If there was a snake right here, you wouldn't reason with it. You wouldn't be like, look, snake, you stay there. I will stay here, and we'll be in our own space, and everything will be okay. You would flee from it. You would be nowhere near it. You would leave it. And that's what Paul says to do. He says, flee from anything. Flee. Run away from anything. Some of us play the game where we like to get as close as we can to things that stimulate youthful lust. And we're like, but I'm not touching it. It's the game I used to play with my brother. Two years older than me. We'd have trips in the car. Long, awful trips in the car. I've told you about my family vacations before. Man, my dad's idea of a family vacation was let's get in the car and see how far we can get. And then we'll look at something cool for like an hour and a half. And then we'll get back in the car and we'll go some more. So my brother and I in the back seat would get really irritating with one another and we weren't allowed to touch each other. But this wasn't touching. I'm not touching you. We do that with sin. And we expect to stay pure. But God says, through Paul, flee from sin. But not just flee from sin, but also anything that causes sin. Anything that causes us to flirt with sin. Flee from it and pursue God instead. See, here's the problem with fleeing something. When you flee something, unless you flee it and run towards God, it does you zero good. This is why I, I, would, I would encourage you. So... This is just a simple example, um, and, it, and it's not to say anything negative about an AA program, but an AA program is one thing. We have Celebrate Recovery in town, which is a wholly other thing, something that's focused on the God of the universe and who he is, and I would say if you're going to flee from something, that's a good decision, but flee somewhere that God is, because if you're running towards something that's not God, you're running in the wrong direction, because if it's not God, it leads to sin. And so you flee from things that cause sin, but you run towards, with purpose, towards God. You pursue these things, righteous living, faithfulness, love, and peace. Righteous living, man, you, you know how you pursue righteous living? It's not complicated. 
you pursue righteous living um, by being in the Word of God. If you plan to live a life that honors God, you have to know what honors God. And it's great that I can tell you some things on a Sunday morning, right? And there are highlights that I try to hit. It's like, hey, man, this does not honor God. This does honor God. And so we have this dialogue, and that's great. But if you want to live a life that honors God, that pursues righteous living, you have to know what God calls righteous living. The only way you know what God calls righteous living is by being in his word and understanding what God calls righteous living. You've got to know and be a part of this. You, listen, I'm going to be as blunt as I can possibly be with you here. You are not fleeing from sin and pursuing righteous living if you have not cracked this thing open. In a while, you're not pursuing righteous living. You can't pursue righteous living unless you are in this word or Some of you do it on your phone. That's fine, too. Don't crack your phone, but you can get on there and read it on your phone. That's fine. But but this is is where I understand what righteous living is. And it's not that. I pursue righteous living, but I also pursue faithfulness. So now get this. This is going to blow your mind. When you pursue righteous living, which means you're in the word, and I understand what God says, I also am pursuing faithfulness, which means... I'm doing what it says. I am convinced this is why some of you don't read the Bible. Maybe not some of you personally, but Christians in general. Like, hey, I go to church, I don't really read it. Why? Well, because I don't really want to know what it says. Because as soon as I understand what it says, then I have a crisis of decision. And I either say, God, I don't care what it says and I'm not doing it, or... I live faithfully according to the word of God. I can't tell you, um, actually I probably could tell you how many, but it's a lot, conversations that I've had with people in my office where they come in and, and we're having a conversation about something and I show them in God's word where it says that and they're like, I wish you hadn't showed me that. And they're being dead serious. Because before they knew it said that, They had no conflict with their behavior. But once they know it says that, now they have a decision to make. I can't rightly pursue faithfulness if I'm not willing to do what God says. And that means I ruthlessly have to cut sin out of my life. Ruthlessly cut sin out of my life. If you're not willing to ruthlessly cut sin out of your life, then you're not being sanctified. You're not pursuing holiness. You cannot pursue holiness when you play with sin. Pursue love. It's agape love, covenant committed love. That is love that is a choice, not a feeling or a sentiment. It's love that's of the mind and will, not emotion or desire. To pursue love means that I'm pursuing conscious determination to be who God's called me to be and to treat people the way that God would have me treat them, not to follow uh, the desires of my heart. Because sometimes the desires of my heart tell me that person deserves nothing from you. But my conscious determination to pursue godly love tells me, you know what, Hans? You pour yourself out. You love your enemies. And then you pursue peace. Romans 18, 12, or I'm sorry, Romans 12, 18 tells us that as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody. 
So if you're sitting here today and you're like, okay, well, I want to be a special instrument. I don't want to be, I don't want to be a chamber pot, but I want to be something useful. I want to be useful for God. I want to grow in my relationship and I want to grow in holiness so that I can be useful for the ministry. How do I do it? Well, here's what you do. You get in the word and then you live the word. And you pursue godly love because the word tells you to. Because the word of God says, this is how you love one another. And then, man, you pursue peace. As much as it depends on you, you pursue peace. And when you do those things, you are making yourself holy. Through the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life, you're making yourself holy and you're being set apart so that you are ready to do what God has you to do. And look at this last thing here. So you pursue righteousness, living, uh, faithfulness, love, and peace, but you also enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. When we say things like small group, man, we're not just making stuff up. You need to be in relationship with other people who are committed to holiness. Enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. And, and, and I know some of you know, you, but you need to be in a in group of people who love God the way that you do because it influences you along that way. We have one of the small groups that I'm in right now. We are praying for our kids. Every week we get together to pray for our kids. We talk about different things that our kids need and different struggles uh, that we have as parents and all of those things. And then we just pray for our kids. We just pour prayer on them. And as we do that, you know what it does? Being a regular part of that group where we are praying for each other's kids, you know what that does? That has done nothing but increase my personal prayer life. I have a pretty decent personal prayer life, but I can tell you that in the last six weeks, it has become even stronger because I just, there's this commitment with like-minded people, the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts so that I can be a part of that and grow with them. And it has meaning and value. Okay, a couple other verses and we'll finish out this chunk. And it says, again, I say, don't get involved in the foolish, ignorant arguments that only start fights. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but must be kind to everyone, be able to teach and be patient with difficult people. And so a lot of like what we talked about last week when we talked about uh, rejecting falsehood, um, here we have this same conversation where Paul says, oh, and by the way, just remember this. Again, I say it. Don't have stupid fights because they don't work. And I'll remind you, this isn't good, honest, biblical, theological discussion. This isn't two people sitting down saying, the Bible is true, this is my foundation, and we wonder if this is right or that is right, but we know that whatever the Bible teaches, that's what's true. And we, we might have different thoughts on that. This is somebody who starts from a foundation. He says, don't even engage in those things where people don't believe this to be God's word, where people don't believe Jesus to be the son of God. Don't have those conversations. They're foolish arguments. They only start fights. We talked about it last week. They ruin the faith of some. They have no place in the church. But, now get this, teach those people. They're wrong because they've ignored core doctrine. But don't be angry. Don't be quarrelsome. Patiently teach them. Be kind to them. And so Paul's going to shift here a little bit in, in, into this thing about church discipline. And he says, you know what? You need to patiently teach them. And we need to be patient. So I want you to understand this big idea here. There's something that I need you to get because I feel like we miss this at times. I feel like I miss this at times. 
as much as we're to be bold and without compromise for the Lord, we're to do so with an attitude of meekness and humility and gentleness. You are called, when it comes to saying and believing and holding firm to truth, you are called to do so without compromise because God's honor is worth it. But Paul says, man, be kind, be gentle, teach them because you are to do it with meekness and gentleness and humility. Understand now, that does not mean weakness. The idea of meekness And gentleness in this context is restrained strength. By your will, restraining your strength so that you can live in the power of the Holy Spirit, not your own. We are called to do this with meek, humble, and gentle attitudes. And Paul finishes up this chunk and he says this, gently instruct those who oppose the truth because perhaps God will change those people's hearts and they'll learn the truth. Then they will come to their senses and escape from the devil's trap for they've been held captive by him to do whatever he wants. Now, this this gets tricky because he's saying two things that we typically don't put together. In meekness, gentleness, and humility, oppose people who are bringing falseness and dishonor into the church. And when we think of opposition, we don't think gentle, humble, and meek. We think strength and fierceness. But Paul says, no, 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 with humbleness, meekness, and gentleness, you gently instruct those who oppose the truth. So here's what I want you to understand. We're going to talk just a minute as we get ready to close here, just just a few more minutes about church discipline. And as we talk about church discipline, I want you to understand something about church discipline. Church discipline, when we engage in church discipline, we don't do it lightly. When we engage church discipline, here's what it is. Understand this. Get with this. Look, look, look here. You got to know. It's a rescue mission. That's what Paul's telling Timothy here. It's, it's what Jesus tells us. It's what I'm telling you. When we engage in church discipline, we don't do it lightly. We don't do it flippantly. We do it carefully and respectfully, and we do it purposely because church discipline is a rescue mission. Because there are people that are held captive and are trying to escape the devil's trap, but he has a hold of them, and our job is to gently instruct them because it's not them right? It's Satan who has a hold of them. And when we engage in church discipline, sometimes it feels harsh. Sometimes it feels mean, but get this, understand this. It is a rescue mission. Then they will come to their senses and escape the devil's trap for they have been held captive by him to do whatever he wants. We need to rescue them from that bondage. So we do it gently. We do it carefully. Church discipline, sometimes when we talk about that, people get, um, boy, they get mad at the church when we talk about church discipline. Um, They think of it like we're cops. Like we're just trying to control behavior like we're cops, and we're not, really. So we've decided, how many of you are familiar with law and order? Okay, if you're familiar with law and order, this will make sense to you. We've decided to reclaim what you assume 
church discipline is about because it's not about us policing, right? It's about discipline and grace, and it's a rescue mission. So go ahead. In a church congregation, unrepentant sin is especially heinous. Those who confront these sins are mature Christians and church leaders. These are their stories. lookout because we are going to be having a, um, a little YouTube series um, going through the steps of church discipline, uh, and we wanted to lighten it up a little bit. Uh, it's a serious topic, but again, we're not out policing things. What we're doing is, is we're on a rescue mission, and so I'm going to go through the steps with you here. Uh, they're found in Matthew, and they are what exists in our policy, and you can be on the lookout as as uh, we task Vince to help us continue to teach about church discipline um, in a different kind of format. Okay, everything we know about church discipline um, starts with what Jesus tells us in Matthew 18. Step one, we have a four-step policy. Discipline doesn't actually start until step um, until step three. Okay? Here's the first thing. If another believer sins against you, uh, that means that somebody is actively sinning, um, wantonly sinning. Now, here's the deal. I sin all the time. So this is not um, asking anybody to be the sin police. But if another Christian is wantonly or unrepentantly sinning, that means they are just doing whatever they feel like, and, and there's no regard for what God says. Okay, we would say that person has been ensnared, that person is, is um, trapped, and they need to be shown. And so we would say, um, go to that person privately. Now this is, I'm going to ask you to do this carefully, okay, right? Uh, pray for humility and wisdom, right? Choose an appropriate setting and time. Do it privately. You don't need to have this conversation with somebody else. The reason we do it privately here is because the goal in church discipline is restoration. The goal is that that person would understand how they've made a mistake and they would repent and then the problem would be over. The more people that know about it, the harder it is to have this restoration. Okay, that's why we have progressive steps. We're not trying to embarrass anybody. We're not trying to to call anybody out. We're trying to gently instruct and rescue them. So we go privately. If that doesn't work, if you're unsuccessful, take one or two others with you. And then go back again so that everything you say can be confirmed by two or three witnesses. Now, this is simple. Um, I'm not taking people that will agree with me, but I'm taking one or two people with me um, that are held in high esteem. I'm taking one or two people with me that we understand to be fair. I'm taking one or two people with me that I know are humble in spirit. 
and we're having a conversation. Again, not to belittle and not to put down, but the conversation is, look, we talked about this before. I know you still don't see it this way, or you still, uh, we're, not, we're not willing to make a change. I, you know, I, I brought these people to help. Let's have this conversation together. You know, maybe hearing from them will help. Maybe you, as you explain things to them and they have answers for you, that'll change. However this goes, right, I take one or two people with me so that we can continue the dialogue. And hopefully they'll hear that and they'll say, you know what? Okay, I thought Matt was just saying that. I thought he just didn't like me or whatever it was. But now I understand you guys are showing me scripture. You're showing me my mistake. I get it. And, and, and you're right. I repent. And here's how I'm going to repent. And, and then the problem is over and it's done. And we still have yet not entered into church discipline. We've just had conversations and corrective things. And it's easy. If they still don't listen, step three says, take it to the church. We add, as part of our discipline policy, take it to the church through the elders. This does not mean that you come on up here on a Sunday morning and you grab the microphone and you say, oh, by the way, I got something to say about um, Billy and what he's done, and I want everybody to know it because the Bible says take it to the church. That's not what we're talking about. At this point in time, what we're talking about is you take it to the elders and you say, as representatives of the church, as leaders in the church, I tell the elders, here's my concern. Here's what's happening. I've tried to talk with them. I've asked other people to go with me and we've had these hard conversations and there has been no repentance and we're still continuing in sin. And so now we're telling it to the church through the elders. Okay? And this is where we enter into church discipline is where elders will go and have a conversation and say, look, as those in spiritual authority over you, you're making a mistake. Scripturally speaking, here's the mistake that you're making. We love you and we want to call you to repent. Let's do this together. If there is repentance, we're done. We may have follow-up steps where we talk to people after the fact and, and, and we say, how's it going with your repentance? Are you setting up things, you know, if it has something to do with behaviors that you're engaged in, are you, are you getting involved in accountability? Are you getting involved in these things so that we can make sure that you're continuing to move forward? You're fleeing from sinfulness and you're pursuing righteousness. And we may ask those follow-up questions, but at this point, if someone repents, okay, sin that I repent from but struggle to grow through is not a church discipline issue. I, I want you to understand that because that's a big deal. If I am engaged in a sinful behavior and I know it's sinful and I confess it and I have accountability partners working with me and I'm trying to grow through it and sometimes I stumble and fall, other times I can resist, but I continue to work through it, that's not a church discipline issue. Sin that I've acknowledged as sin that I'm trying to grow past isn't church discipline. That's Christian maturity. We all have that. Some of it's more public, some of it's more private, but we all have sin that we're trying to grow out of and grow past. That's Christian discipleship. That is pursuing holiness. That's a good thing. It's sin that I say, yeah, I know what the Bible says, but I don't care. That is unrepentant sin that we have to then engage in this. And so the elders will come to you and say, look, you made a covenant agreement to follow scripture. That means this behavior is not acceptable to God. And so we're going to ask you to repent from it. And if there is repentance, then we move on. If there's not repentance, um, then step four is what Jesus says is the elders institute the appropriate discipline. If he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat the person, this is harsh, 
treat them as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. Paul delves into this in 1 Corinthians 5 when he says, man, that person is not allowed in the church. Now, I'm going to say this. Different discipline, and this is something the elders still sometimes don't know exactly what to do or when to do it because it's never cut and dried. Certain sin requires a removal from covenant membership. Which means, you know what, you are welcome to be here because we say true things here and we want you to hear true things. So there is certain sin that we say, you know what, we want you to be in church, you're welcome to be in church because we want you to hear true things, but we restrict covenant membership. We're not asking you, we're not giving you permission or the privilege to vote on our leadership. We're not giving you the permission or privilege to serve in teaching capacities, leading small groups, teaching Sunday schools, because that is a separation that you've chosen to be unrepentant, and so we're not going to engage there. So we've made those decisions. There may be times where we have to say, you know what, until there's repentance because it's, because it's causing dishonor to the God of the universe and disruption in the body that we have to just tell you that you're not welcome here at the church. We've not had to do that. I don't anticipate there being a time when we have to do that. But there are some scenarios in Scripture where that is a must. Paul gives one uh, very graphic uh, and clear scenario of that. It's when somebody unrepentantly is having a, a sexual relationship with a family member. And they refuse to listen to one. They refuse to listen to several. They refuse to listen to the leadership of the church. And so Paul says, put them outside of the church because it's doing dishonor and it's causing God's name to be dishonored in the community that you live in. And so they're out. But no matter what happens, understand this. Church discipline, even if we have to exclude somebody from the congregation, which we hope we never do and we've never had to, but even if we had to, the goal is so that they would repent. And as soon as they repent, we welcome them back into the fellowship of the church because the whole goal in all of this is to rescue them. That's what Paul says. He's like, gently instruct those who oppose you because they're trapped by Satan and you might win them back. You might be able to bring them back through the process of church discipline. So we understand that grace always rules, and even when we have to act in a disciplinary fashion, it's so that grace can win in your life, and you can follow God, and we can bring you back, and we can rescue you from this useless destruction that you've been trapped in. And so, again, hopefully that doesn't have to happen, but when it does, it does for a purpose, okay? All right, I'm going to ask the praise team to come up, ask Malia to come up, and I'm going to close with a prayer that just simply uh, invites us as a body to understand that we are to be called to something, and, and I know this to be true. I don't care who you are here. If you are a Christian or a non-Christian, if you are a mature Christian or you are a struggling Christian, if you are brand new at this or you've been doing it for years and rocking it, I don't care who you are right now. This is a true statement about you. You have sin that you are trying to overcome in your life. Because we know that we will never get here, this side of heaven. Because we will have a sin nature that we are always fighting and struggling against. Some of them might be more pronounced. Some of them might be smaller. But we're all trying to go past them. And so here's what I'm going to ask us to do with, with one voice in final prayer here before we move on. Is to repent and to move because the gospel is worth it. And if you are here today and you are harboring unrepentant sin in your heart,
things that you are doing and you know better and you know it's sinful, but you just have yet to repent and say, okay, God, you're more important than this sin. I'm going to give it up. Then this is a perfect time to do that. If there is sin that you know and you've given it up, but you still struggle through it, this is a good time to be in prayer for that too. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the call to repent and to grow. Thank you for the call to move closer and closer and closer to you as Christians. Father, we thank you for the truth that you are always wanting to grow us in holiness. And that as we grow in holiness, you always have things for us to do that will fill us with increasing joy and increasing purpose and passion. Father, as we struggle with sin, as we struggle with sin, I pray that you'll move us to be holy. Father, for those here that struggle with sin but that have yet to to confess it and have yet to make a decision to try to move away from it, I pray that you will just break the chain of that sin in their heart right now, that you will just break that and that they will see clearly through the power of the Holy Spirit that you have called them to better, to purposeful, to special use, and that they must grow. And Father, for those here that, that have surrendered but continue to fall and stumble and struggle, I pray that you just continue to give us passion to move, purpose in our step, to put people in our lives that will help us move forward and to continue to gird us with the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can pursue holiness in a way that honors you. God, we love you and we praise you and we ask you for this help because you are a good and gracious God who has provided every help that we need through Jesus Christ on the cross, through our salvation, through the power of the Holy Spirit living in us. God, you have provided what we need. We love you and praise you. Amen.